All right. Well, one time uh, I had an opportunity to preach, and I was told by the person who had organized and coordinated my preaching there, uh, you know, just whatever you do, whatever you want to talk about, that can be your choice. Just don't speak about anything controversial. <laughs> we don't want that. We don't want anything controversial. I, I what My response to that was, was like, well, I really can't preach the word now, can I? My hands are kind of tied if I can't teach anything controversial. You see, the word of God is controversial to a world that has rebelled against God. The Bible itself is controversial in our world gone mad. That's because the Bible commands and compels us to leave the patterns of this world behind and conform into Christ and to live in ways that run contrary to the dogma of our day. And that's definitionally controversy. That's controversial. And this passage is absolutely no exception. All right? Now, we've been walking through in First Peter how to live out our living hope. We've learned some wonderful, encouraging things like we're a royal priesthood. You are an heir. You have an inheritance that far outweighs whatever Elon Musk's kids are going to get, like an amazing, imperishable, immeasurable inheritance that you will enjoy for all of eternity. But we learned this life is difficult. We're to follow in the steps of Christ even unto suffering. That's what we've been called to. And meanwhile, through all that, we, we live in a world system with authority structures that often don't treat us like the royal priesthood that we are. So, the question that we've been asking each Sunday is, how do we live out our living hope in an unbelieving world? How do we live out our Christian testimony in a world around us? So we started out with very big picture in chapter 2. How do we live it out around a world of unbelievers? around society as a whole? How do we keep our conduct around an unbelieving world honoring to Christ? Then we narrow it down a little bit. How do we live out our testimony and faithfully serve God as it uh, as it uh, concerns our civil government, our authorities, our institutions, our government? Then we get down a little more narrow. What about on the job? How do we honor our bosses, our workplace authorities? And now, In this week's controversial segment, we're going to narrow down even further to the closest unit of society, and that is in your marriage. How do we honor God in our marriages? So if you haven't already, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter, of course, is writing in the first century to predominantly Gentile Christians in the churches that are over Asia Minor, or what we would know as present-day Turkey. Now, in that time, uh, women received little to no respect, at least in how we would see it in today's society. They were living in their father's house. They were under what the Romans called patria potestas, which means the father's power, which was legally binding power. And when married, that power would transfer to the husband, 
Husbands had similar legal authority over their wives, and so often because of that, wives might be treated like servants. Now, here's where we're getting to in all of that. The idea of a woman following a different faith than her husband was unthinkable. It was unthinkable in Roman society. So imagine what it must have looked like for a woman to hear the gospel, for the Holy Spirit to work in her heart, that she responds in saving faith to Jesus Christ, yet her husband is unsaved. He's still a pagan. I mean, this could result in severe, harsh treatment from her unsaved husband. Let's just picture that for a moment. What that means. The wife has entered into this amazing redemptive relationship with the creator of the universe. She is an heir, a co-heir in Christ. She is part of a royal priesthood. She is a child of the one who made the stars by speaking them into existence. And... She's been forgiven of her sins, given eternal life, imperishable, eternal inheritance. And she's, all of those things, she's been enlightened by the marvelous light of God. And her husband, he's a lost, confused, pathetic pagan. So what does she do in that situation? The question would inevitably arise from these believers in this church, like, what should that woman do? In the same way that we could say that we're a royal priesthood, but our government is pagan, they're confused, they're lost, how do we treat them? Peter answers that. In the same way we can say, I'm an heir in Christ, but my boss is unsaved, and he doesn't know left from right or right from left or good from evil. What do I do about that boss? Peter answers that. How does a woman who's a child of God live with and treat her husband who isn't? Does she leave her husband? Does she leverage her her superior spiritual standing before God over her husband? I mean, both may seem like reasonable options on the surface. But the woman who is a child of God desires to submit to God and his word above all else. A woman who is a child of God desires to achieve the calling of her royal priesthood that we've been going back to and back to and back to in chapter 2, verse 9, that is, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how does she proclaim his excellencies in her marriage? Well, the word is very clear. Verse 1 and 2 again, likewise, wives, Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So first thing, she must remain with her unbelieving husband. We see elsewhere in Scripture that a believing spouse even sanctifies an unbelieving spouse. But the second point, and this is perhaps the most controversial in our day, in our society, She must submit to her husband. Now, the word is abundantly clear, all right? We almost don't even need to clarify this. But there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free or male or female. All are one in Christ. We see that in Galatians. We see that in Colossians. Yes, the spiritual equality before Christ of women and men, of husbands and wives, is never in question. 
One is not more precious to God than the other if they both belong to him. Yet, just as God has ordained roles and responsibilities in civil government, just as God has ordained roles and responsibilities and authority in the workplace, just as God has ordained government and authority and roles within the church, God has divinely ordained family government and our roles within it. Just as God has divinely ordained roles and authority within the Godhead, the triunity of God himself. 1 Corinthians 11, that same chapter that we even read when we were observing communion, says that the head of Christ, of Jesus Christ, is God the Father. There is headship in the Trinity, headship in our civil government, headship in the family. This is God's design for the family with our well-being in mind, with society's well-being in mind. The family must be a properly functioning, properly ordered unit. The family is the fundamental building block of society. The family is the most important basic human unit of any healthy society. So just like any functional military unit that is carrying out its mission and its role, proper roles and relationships and authorities are vital in that unit. I mean, it's no wonder that this passage and passages like these are so controversial in our society. If I were just to read those first, you know, six words of, of this passage, sometimes maybe some of you even hear that and you kind of bristle at it and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm waiting for you to tell me how it doesn't really say what it sounds like it's saying. You know, give me an explanation that says, oh, that's just for that culture or that time or that how the words have been mistranslated. If you say it out in the world, people will definitely say it's controversial. Am I right? Just try it if, if you disagree with me. Find someone in, in the East Town Mall and, and read that verse to them and see what their response is. All right. It's no wonder that this passage and passages like these are so controversial and in our society because the strength of any nation is in its families. And in our society, the family is under attack. The importance of the family is under attack. The sovereignty of the family is under attack. The definition of what a family is is under attack. And yes, the role of the family in society is under attack. So too is the definition of a God-ordered functional family and the roles within it. So absolutely, this seems controversial here today in our society. Yet we look at this and we see in the first word here, likewise, wives. Likewise. There's been this string of likewises all the way through these last several segments that we've been covering. Likewise, in the way that we are to submit to our civil government, likewise, in the way that we are to submit to our workplace authorities, likewise, all of those things are ultimately out of submission to Christ. Wives are to submit to their own husbands, even to unbelieving husbands. That's tough. Just like in the previous section, we talked about how the goodness of our boss does not determine the amount of respect that we give them. The salvation or goodness of one's husband should not determine the level of respect given to him because ultimately we are obeying the word. Ultimately, we are obeying our Lord. Ultimately, it's Christ that we are respecting. 
that says here so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What Peter is saying right here is that a Christian wife's conduct is the most powerful testimony she can possibly have for her unbelieving husband. You could go to a a rally where some very charismatic, uh, spellbinding preacher gives a gospel message. That is not going to be nearly as powerful as his Christian wife living out her testimony in the home. In fact, this is the exact point that Peter makes at the macro level in chapter 2, verse 12, when he says to keep our conduct, conduct among all believers honorable, a wife's respectful, Christ-honoring behavior toward her husband is a compelling testimony of Christ's work in her life. Now, ultimately, there's no silver bullet. There's no formula to get someone else saved. You know, you can't, you could be the most, uh, Christian honest testimony to someone for your entire life, but ultimately we know that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit in an individual that draws them from darkness into faith. And salvation requires a decision of that individual to follow Christ. So nobody can make another person saved, but I can tell you, I, I've seen this happen before numerous times. And it's a beautiful thing to see what Peter's talking about here. What Peter's talking about here is often the vehicle by which a stubborn, unrepentant, thick-skulled, hard-hearted man is drawn to God. It's an amazing thing to see. I've seen it. I've seen a a woman get saved and, and follow Christ and... She starts going to church. She starts singing praises to the Lord and her husband is saying, I have no clue what's going on over here. Like, this is weird to me. This is bizarre. What in the world has my wife gotten into or what is she saying at first? But then he starts to notice. He starts to notice that so many things about her have changed. So many things about her have changed for the better. She's joyful in areas where she wasn't joyful before. She's cheerful and kind. She responds to conflict with grace. She forgives when she wouldn't forgive before. She doesn't hold grudges. And the guy is saying, look, she honors me. And quite frankly, I know that I'm not honorable. And he starts to wonder, what is it that I'm missing? And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see a a husband who once was so hard of heart come forth in saving faith and come to the waters of baptism. There are a few things that that well up my emotions more than to see marriages that were once marred by conflict be restored by the power of Christ, all because of God's grace at work and the graceful Christian testimony lived out by a godly woman in her own home. That is powerful. And just think about this. If this is to be modeled even in a marriage of a wife who gets saved to a knuckle-headed pagan, how much more so should this be modeled in a marriage of two Christians who both are striving to self-sacrificially agape love and serve one another out of their love for Christ? How much more should it be modeled in our marriages here in this community of faith? But Peter continues on with instructions for women who are living out their living hope. He says in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, now I just read verse 3, the do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Just before you start to discreetly like remove your earrings and unbraid your hair, let me let me get into what that's saying here, okay? The word is not saying that women are forbidden from adorning themselves whatsoever with those kind of things. In fact, the bride in Song of Solomon was beautifully adorned. The point is that outward adornment is not the point. Don't make your adorning be about those kind of things. Outward adornment is not the point. Outward adornment is superficial. Money can buy it, so that by definition means that it's ultimately cheap, right? Fashion sense is not virtue. Fashion sense doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up even to time. I mean, the things that I wore in college, even I look back on, I'm like, I can't believe that that was popular then. Some of you who have lived a little bit longer and seen a lot more fashion trends have probably had that moment happen over and over. And I've noticed that ties have gone from wide to narrow to wide to narrow to wide to narrow. And I'm just like, I'm never going to be cool. So I might as well just wear what I have and, and get over it. Same with jeans and all that. But the point is that fashion is not virtue. Fashion ebbs and flows. It doesn't hold up to time. It doesn't win anyone to Christ. And it does not reflect the glory of God. It's a human invention. Yet in Roman society, much like our society, superficial adornment and fashion was everything. Just like our culture, it reflected status, wealth, privilege, all of those things. But what the word is saying right here is that true beauty is something lasting. And not just lasting, the word that's used here is a word that was also used previously in chapter 1 for that eternal inheritance that we have. The word imperishable. Skin gets wrinkly. Bodies fail. This kind of beauty is imperishable. It cannot perish. It's something that can't be bought with currency, and it's far more valuable than any jewelry or designer clothing. It's, as it says here, the hidden person of the heart. A gentle and quiet spirit. The gold jewelry isn't precious to God. I mean, how could gold jewelry be precious to God? He he owns everything. So a little tiny gold trinket, not precious. The earth is his footstool, okay? But a beautiful spirit, as it says here, is very precious in God's sight. The hidden person of the heart. It's talking about that inner beauty of spiritual virtue. That beauty reflects the transformative power of Christ, and that is so precious to God. So Peter uses the example here of holy women in Old Testament times adorning themselves with virtue and submitting to their own husbands. Now, I want to make a quick point. We talked about the culture of Roman society, and it may be easy to look at this passage and say, well, if the Romans were that way, maybe this is just written for them and their culture. Not so, because Peter is using the example of Sarah who lived thousands of years before this. So this is instructive for us today. 
but he uses the example that Sarah was faithful to Abraham and submitted to Abraham, even though we know that Abraham was far, far from perfect. Abraham did a couple knuckleheaded things that are recorded in the book of Genesis, but Sarah was a faithful wife to Abraham. And it says here that, you know, as we are all spiritual children of Abraham, as it says in Romans, in the same way, women have a pattern to follow in Sarah. It says that we're called to, to do good and to do so with courage and boldness, not live in fear of anything frightening. I've said all that to the ladies. Guys might have tuned out for a little bit. Or maybe they nudge their wife and say, hey, listen up to this. Maybe you need to hear that. Guys, you are not off the hook, all right? We got verse 7 right here. Wake up. This one is for you. And maybe a ladies turn around and nudge your man and say, wake up and you need to hear this. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, elsewhere in the Word, in chapter in passages that I'm sure we'll get to uh, through expositorily preaching through the Bible, uh, like Ephesians, there's actually way more about the husband and his role than there is about the wife. My wife likes to remind me of that, be like, hey, in Ephesians, there's like twice as much for you than there is for me. Here, there's just one verse for the guys. It's possible that many of the believers in these churches to whom Peter wrote were those wives who had come to Christ, yet their husband's still unsaved. So he's giving instruction to them under the Holy Spirit for their situation. But here in this one verse, men, we have some challenging things that we have to submit to. We've got things that are controversial in the time that they were written and challenging and controversial to us today. So just from the get-go here, we see again a continuation in the string of likewise statements. If you look back, you'll see that a lot of these start with likewise. Likewise in our duties of submission. So likewise to civil government, likewise to work government, likewise for wives. Likewise, you husbands submit to your Christly duty to lovingly serve your wife. And here we have three basic responsibilities of a godly husband. Three basic duties. The first that we have here is be considerate. It's consideration. That's we get from live with your wives in an understanding way, is what it says. Live with them in an understanding way. Now this word for, for understanding way means with knowledge. With knowledge. It's saying know your wife. Know her needs. Know her emotional, physical, spiritual needs. Know her personality, her desires. Take the time to get to know truly who she is and what God has gifted her to be. This implies sensitivity, consideration, gentleness, listening. It requires us getting over ourselves. And truly considering that other person greater than our own selves. Getting out of our way, guys, and saying, I want to know deeply this person that God has blessed me to share life with. So godly husbands must work and labor to nourish and treasure and cherish their wives. And that begins by understanding them. But the second responsibility that we see here is honor. 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So we have be considerate and honor. We should make our wives feel honored. I often think about that when I read this verse. Like, what have I done today that would make Janet say, you know, I feel honored by my husband. Guys, are we living in such a way that that your wife would say, I truly feel honored by this man that is my husband. I mean, this word for honored, it means greatly valued, highly esteemed, treasured, cherished. Now, some women might bristle at the, the notion of this phrase, weaker vessel, all right? I've heard that brought up before. I don't really like that it says weaker vessel. Well, it's the Word of God, so, you know, get over it. But uh, Peter is not making some theological statement here, okay? He's, he's not saying that women are inferior spiritually or anything like that. He's just making a plain-as-day biological observation in that weaker, this word for weaker means generally, physically smaller, and not as strong. And what he's saying to the men is, buck up, buddies. Men, honor your wives and their beauty by protecting them. I mean, this is the root of chivalry right here. Husbands are to be protectors and providers. Protectors and providers. That is your duty. That is biblical masculinity right there. We husbands are to give ourselves to the absolute self-sacrificial protection of our wives at the sake of our own bodies, our own health, our own desires, and even our own lives. So honor your wives in that manner. But then lastly, we see our third thing. We had um, consideration, we have honor, and we have companionship. As it says here, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. A godly husband and a godly wife come together in marriage, that is the greatest companionship that exists on this earth. The two people who become one flesh, who self-sacrificially love one another, are also co-heirs to an eternal inheritance. I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing to, to buy a house together, to build up a savings together to have a nest egg or a retirement fund, all of that, but it's infinitely greater to be heirs together to the grace of life. We share this life together. This this life, which as short as it is, is such a profound gift. We have a life partner in this life, a loyal love a shared experience, and even in, if we're blessed to do so, creating and raising life with that person in our children. But we also share the inheritance of eternal life. Now, the responsibilities of a husband here are so important to God that, now keep this in mind, guys, you only got one verse and the ladies, they got six. But there is such a stark warning here. There's a divine threat here. The responsibilities of a husband are so important to God that there are spiritual consequences that are listed right here for husbands who fail at it. Your prayers are hindered. Whoa. Your prayers are hindered. 
That's right. That is a divine threat. You will not experience God's care in your life if you fail to care for your wife that God gave you. But for those that model these God-given roles, there are few places to live out our living hope more profoundly than in our marriage and in our home. There are a few places to model true self-sacrifice and true agape love more than in our home and in our marriage. Guys, the, the world is watching us. They're watching our marriages. They're observing. They're observing how wives you treat your husbands, how husbands you treat your wives. I know this because the thing that surprised me the most when I was working out in the world were the comments that people would make about how I talked to my wife and about my wife and how it was different than the rest of my coworkers, how I honored her. That's what stuck out the most. Not the fact that I showed up on time or, you know, worked hard on the job. It was like, wow, the way you talk about your wife, you, it's different. The world is watching. This is a way to demonstrate our testimony. It's a way to demonstrate that Christ has transformed us. Is it controversial? To the world, absolutely. But God knows what he's doing and he has established the family as an amazing, amazing blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is controversial, that it just speaks through all the glut and the the lies of our culture that's just made up by humans that live a short amount of time and think we know what we're doing. And Lord, we just thank you that your your word sometimes acts as a, as a two-edged sword that just pierces through and shows us, whoa, this is actually what God's truth says about these things. Lord, I pray that beyond just acknowledging your word, I pray that we would submit to your word. I pray that our marriages would flourish under the guidelines that you've given us and the wisdom and the commandments. Lord, I pray for us men that, that we would be showing honor to our wives in a way that the world can see and, and objectively know that there's a difference there. There's some, there's light there. There's truth. There's love. Lord, I pray the same for the, for the wives in this church. I pray that for all of us in whatever capacity you've given us unto, whether it be marriage or singleness or, or kids or anything like that, that we would demonstrate your light in our families. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.